Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 310. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, we've got a longer than usual story for you folks this week, so we're going to jump right in. We bring you The Ugly Chickens by Howard Waldrop. Howard Waldrop's one of the most unusual writers in speculative fiction. He's primarily a short story guy with over 60 published stories in the past 30 years, but he's cranked out a couple of novels too, including Them Bones and A Dozen Tough Jobs, not to mention several collections, including Howard Who, Night of the Cooters, Other Worlds, Better Lives, and Things Will Never Be the Same. He lives in Austin, Texas. This story, The Ugly Chickens, won the Nebula Award for Best Novelette in 1980, and also a World Fantasy Award for Short Fiction in 1981. So, without further ado, we bring you The Ugly Chickens by Howard Waldrop. My car was broken, and I had a class to teach at 11, so I took the city bus, something I rarely do. I spent last summer crawling through the big thickets with cameras and tape recorder, photographing and taping the last two ivory-billed woodpeckers on Earth. You can see the films at your local Audubon Society showroom. This year I wanted something just as flashy, but a little less taxing. Perhaps a population study on the Bermuda Keha or the New Zealand Takahe. A month or so in the warm, not hot, sun would do me a world of good, to say nothing of the advance of science. I was idly leafing through Greenway's extinct and vanishing birds of the world. The city bus was winding its way through the ritzy neighborhoods of Austin, stopping to let off the Chicanas, black women, and Vietnamese who tended the kitchens and gardens of the rich. Well, I haven't seen any of those ugly chickens in a long time, said a voice close by. A gray-haired lady was leaning across the aisle toward me. I looked at her, then around. Maybe she was a shopping bag lady. Maybe she was just talking. I looked straight at her. No doubt about it, she was talking to me. She was waiting for an answer. Uh, I used to live near some folks who raised them when I was just a girl, she said. She pointed. I looked down at the page my book was open to. What I should have said was, That is quite impossible, madam. This is a drawing of an extinct bird of the island of Meridius. It is perhaps the most famous dead bird in the world. Maybe you're mistaking this drawing for that of some rare Asiatic turkey, peafowl, or pheasant. I'm sorry, but you are mistaken. I should have said all of that. What she said was, Oops, this is my stop, and got up to go. My name is Paul Linborough. I'm 26 years old, a graduate student in ornithology at the University of Texas, a teaching assistant. My name's not unknown in the field. I have several vices and follies, but I don't think foolishness is one of them. The stupid thing for me to do would have been to follow her. She stepped off the bus. I followed her. I came into the departmental office trailing scattered papers in the whirlwind behind me. Martha! Martha! I yelled. She was doing something in the supply cabinet. Jesus, Paul, what do you want? Where's Courtney? At the conference in Houston? You know that. You missed your class. What's the matter? Petty cash, let me at it. Now, payday was only a week ago. If you can't... Oh, it's business, Martha. It's fame. It's adventure. And a chance of a lifetime. It's a long sea voyage that leaves soon. Or a plane ticket to either Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis. Make it Jackson, it's closer. I'll get receipts, Martha. I'll be famous. Courtney will be famous. <laughs> You'll even be famous. And this university will make even more money. I'll pay you back. Y give me some paper. I gotta write Courtney a note. When's the next plane out of here? Could you get Marie and Chuck to take over my classes on Tuesday and Wednesday? I'll try to be back on Thursday unless something happens. Courtney will be back tomorrow, right? I'll call him from home. Well, wherever. Do you have any coffee? And so on and so forth. Martha looked at me like I was crazy, but she filled out the requisition anyway. What do I tell Comedian when I ask him to sign these? Martha, babe, sweetheart, tell him I'll get his picture in Scientific American. He doesn't read it. Nature, then. I'll see what I can do, she said.
The lady I had followed off the bus was named Jolyn Smith Jimson. The story she told me was so weird that it had to be true. She knew things only an expert or someone with first-hand experience could know. I got names from her, addresses, directions, and tidbits of information. Plus a year, 1927, and a place, northern Mississippi. I gave her my copy of the Greenway book. I told her I'd call her as soon as I got back into town. I left her standing on the corner near the house of the lady she cleaned for twice a week. Jolyn Jimson was in her sixties. Think of the dodo as a baby harp seal with feathers. I know that's not even close, but it saves time. In 1507, the Portuguese, on their way to India, found the, then unnamed, Mascarene Islands in the Indian Ocean, three of them a few hundred miles apart, all east and north of Madagascar. It wasn't until 1598, when that old Dutch sea captain Cornelius van Neck bumped into them, that the islands received their names, names, which changed several times throughout the centuries as the Dutch, French, and English changed them every war or so. They're now known as Rodriguez, Reunion, and Mauritius. The major feature of these islands were large, flightless birds. Stupid, ugly, bad-tasting birds. Van Neck and his men named them Dodarsen, stupid ass, or Dodars, silly birds, or solitaires. There were three species, the dodo of Mauritius, the real gray-brown, hooked-beak clumsy thing that weighed twenty kilos or more, the white, somewhat slimmer dodo of Reunion, and the solitaires of Rodriguez and Reunion, which looked like very fat, very dumb, light-colored geese. The dodos all had thick legs, big squat bodies twice as large as a turkey's, naked faces, and big, long, down-curved beaks ending in a hook like a hollow linoleum knife. And they were, of course, flightless. Long ago, they had lost the ability to fly, and their wings had degenerated to flaps the size of a human hand with only three or four feathers on them. Their tails were curly and fluffy, like a child's afterthought at decoration, and they had absolutely no natural enemies. They nested on open ground. They probably hatched their eggs wherever they happened to lay them. No natural enemies until Van Neck and his kind showed up. The Dutch, French, and Portuguese sailors who stopped the masquerines to replenish stores found that besides looking stupid, dodos were very stupid. They walked right up to them and hit them on the head with clubs. Better yet, dodos could be herded around like sheep. Ships' logs are full of things like party of ten men ashore, drove half a hundred of the big turkey-like birds into the boat, brought to ship where they're given to run the decks. Three will feed a crew of one fifty. Even so, most of the dodo, except for the breast, tasted bad. One of the Dutch words for them was volkvogel, disgusting bird. But on a ship three months out on a return from Goa to Lisbon, well, food was where you found it. It was said, even so, that prolonged boiling did not improve the flavor. All that being said, the dodos might have lasted, except that the Dutch and later the French colonized the masquerines. These islands became plantations and dumping places for religious refugees. Sugarcane and other exotic crops were raised there. With the colonists came cats, dogs, hogs, and the cunning ratus nervicicus, and the rhesus monkey from Ceylon. What dodos the hungry sailors left behind were chased down. They were dumb and stupid, but they could run when they felt like it, by dogs in the open. They were killed by cats as they sat on their nests. Their eggs were stolen and eaten by monkeys, rats, and hogs, and they competed with the pigs for all the low-growing goodies on the islands. The last Mauritius dodo was seen in 1681, less than a hundred years after man first saw them. The last white dodo walked off the history books around 1720. The solitaires of Rodriguez and Reunion, last of the genus as well as the species, may have lasted until 1790. Nobody knows. Scientists suddenly looked around and found no more of the didden birds alive anywhere. 
This part of the country was degenerate before the first Snopes ever saw it. This road hadn't been paved until the late fifties, and it was a main road between two county seats. That didn't mean it went through civilized country, though. I'd traveled for miles and seen nothing but dirt banks red as Billy Carter's neck and an occasional church. I expected to see Burma shave signs, but realized this road had probably never had them. I almost missed the turnoff onto the dirt and gravel road the man back at the service station had marked. It led onto the highway from nowhere, a lane out of a field. I turned down it, and a rock the size of a golf ball flew over the hood and put a crack three inches long in the windshield of the rent-a-car I'd gotten in Granada. It was a hot, muggy day for this early. The view was obscured in a cloud of dust every time the gravel thinned. About a mile down the road, the gravel gave out completely. The roadway turned into a rutted dirt pathway, just wider than the car, hemmed in on both sides by a sagging three-strand barbed wire fence. In some places, the fence posts were missing for a few meters. The wire lay on the ground, and in some places disappeared under it for long stretches. The only life I saw was a mockingbird raising hell with something under a thorn bush the barbed wire had been nailed to in place of a post. To one side now was a grassy field which had gone wild, the way everything will look after we blow ourselves off the face of the planet. The other was fast becoming woods pine, oak, some black gum and wild plum, fruit not out this time of the year. I began to ask myself what I was doing here. What if Miss Jimson were some imaginative old crank who, but no, wrong maybe, but even the wrong was worth checking. But I knew she hadn't lied to me. She'd seemed incapable of lies. Good old girl, backbone of the South, of the Earth, not a mendacious gland in her being. I couldn't doubt her, or my judgment either. Here I was, creeping and bouncing down a dirt path in Mississippi after no sleep for a day, out on the thin, ragged edge of a dream. I had to take it on faith. The back of the car sometimes slid where the dirt had loosened and gave way to sand. The back tire stuck once, but I rocked it out. Getting back out again would be another matter. Didn't anyone ever use this road? The woods closed in on both sides like the forest primeval, and the fence had long since disappeared. My odometer said six miles, and it had been twenty minutes since I'd turned off the highway. In the rearview mirror, I saw beads of sweat and dirt in the wrinkles of my neck. A fine patina of dust covered everything inside the car. Clots of it came through the windows. The woods reached out and swallowed the road. Branches scraped against the windows and the top. It was like falling down a long, dark, leafy tunnel. It was dark and green in there. I fought back an atavistic urge to turn on the headlights. The roadbed must have been made of a few centuries of leaf mulch. I kept constant pressure on the accelerator and bulled my way through. Half a log caught and banged and clanged against the car bottom. I saw light ahead. Fearing for the oil pan, I punched the pedal and sped out. I almost ran into the house. It was maybe ten yards from the trees. The road ended under one of the windows. I saw somebody waving from the corner of my eye. I slammed on the brakes. A whole family was on the porch, looking like a Walker Evans depression photograph or a fever dream from the mind of a hee-haw producer. The house was old, strips of peeling paint a yard long tapped against the eaves. Damned good thing you stopped, said a voice. I looked up. The biggest man I had ever seen in my life leaned down into the driver's side window. <laughs> if we'd had heard you sooner, I'd have sent one of the kids down to the end of the driveway to warn you, he said. Driveway? His mouth was stained brown at the corners. I figured he chewed tobacco until I saw the sweet gum snuff brush sticking from the pencil pocket in his bib overalls. His hands were the size of catcher's mitts. They looked like they'd never held anything smaller than an axe handle. How y'all, he said, by way of an introduction. Uh, just fine, I said. I got out of the car. My name's Lindborough, I said, extending my hand. He took it. For an instant, I thought of bear traps, sharks' mouths, and closing elevator doors. The thought went back to wherever it is they stay. Is this the Gudger place? I asked. 
He looked at me blankly with his gray eyes. He wore a diesel truck cap and had on a checkered lumberjack shirt beneath his overalls. His rubber boots were the size of the ones Karloff wore in Frankenstein. No, I'm Jim Bob Crate, and that's my wife Jenny, and there's Luke and Skeeno and Cheryl. He pointed to the porch. The people of the porch nodded. Let's see here, Gudger. No Gudgers around here I know of. I'm sort of new here, though. I took that to mean he hadn't lived here for more than twenty years or so. Jennifer, he yelled. You, uh, know anybody named Gudger? To me, he said. My wife's lived around here all her life. His wife came down onto the second step of the porch landing. You know, I think they used to be the ones what lived on the Spradlin place before the Spradlins. But the Spradlins left around the Korean War. I don't know of any Gudgers myself. That's why we was living over at the Water Valley. You, uh, some sort of insurance man? Asked Mr. Crate. Uh, oh, no, I said. I imagined the people of the porch leaning toward me, all ears. I'm a... I teach college. Ah, uh, Oxford? Asked Crate. Um, no, University of Texas. Well, that's a damn long way off. You say you're looking for some gudgers? Uh, no, just their house. The area. As your wife said, I understand they left during the Depression, I believe. Well, they must have had money, said the gigantic Mr. Crate. Nobody around here was rich enough to leave during the Depression. Luke, he yelled. The oldest boy on the porch sauntered down. He looked anemic and wore a shirt in vogue with a twist. He stood with his hands in his pockets. Luke, show Mr. Lindbergh. Uh, Lindberl. Uh, Mr. Lindberl here, the way to the old Spradlin place. Uh, take him as far as the old log bridge. He might get lost before then. Log bridge broke down, did he? When? October, did he? <laughs> well, shit. Something else to fix. Anyway, to the creek. He turned to me. You want him to go along on up there so you don't get snake bit? No, I'm sure I'll be fine. Mind if I ask what you're going up there for? He asked. He was looking away from me. I could see having to come right out and ask it was bothering him. Such things usually came up in the course of conversation. I'm a, a bird scientist. I, I study birds. We had a sighting. Someone told us the old Gudger place, the area around here. Is, I'm looking for a rare bird. It's kind of hard to explain. I noticed I was sweating. It was hot. You mean like a good god? I saw a good god about 25 years ago, over next to Bruce, he said. Well, no... A good god was one of the names for an ivory-billed woodpecker, one of the rarest in the world. Any other time I would have dropped my jaw, because they were thought to have died out in Mississippi by the teens, and by the fact that Crate knew they were rare. I went to lock up my car, then thought of the protocol of the situation. My car in your way? I asked. Nah, it'll be fine, said Jim Bob Crate. We'll look for you back around sundown. That'll be all right. For a minute, I didn't know whether that was a command or an expression of concern. Just in case I get snake bit, I said. No, I'll, I'll try and be careful up there. Good luck on finding them rare birds, he said. He walked up to the porch with his family. Let's go, said Luke. Behind the crate house was a hen house and pigsty where hogs lay after their morning slop like islands in a muddy bay or some zen pork sculpture. Next we passed broken farm machinery gone to rust, though there was nothing but uncultivated land as far as the eye could see. How the family made a living I didn't know. I'm told you can find places just like this throughout the south. We walked through woods and across fields, following a sort of path. I tried to memorize the turns I would have to take on my way back. Luke didn't say a word the whole twenty minutes he accompanied me, except to curse once when he stepped into a bull nettle with his tennis shoes. We came to a creek which skirted the edge of a woodsy hill. There was a rotted log forming a small dam. Above it, the water was nearly three feet deep. Below it, half that much. See that path? He asked. Yes. Follow it up round the hill, then across the next field. Then you cross the creek again on the rocks and over the hill. Take the left-hand path. What's left of the house about three-quarters way up next hill? You come to a big bare rock cliff you gone too far. You got that? I nodded. He turned and left. 
The house had once been a dog-run cabin, like Miss Jimson had said. Now it was fallen in on one side, what they call Sigoglin, or was it anti-Sigoglin? I once heard a hymn on the radio called The Land Where No Cabins Fall. This was the country songs like that were written in. Weeds grew everywhere. There were signs of fences, a flattened pile of wood that had once been a barn, further behind the house where the outhouse remains. Half a rusted pump stood in the backyard. A flatter spot showed where the vegetable garden had once been. In it, a single wild tomato, pecked by birds, lay rotting. I passed it. There was lumber from three outbuildings, mostly rotten and green with algae and moss. One had been a smokehouse and woodshed combination. Two had been chicken roosts. One was larger than the other. It was there I started to poke and dig. Where? Where? I wish I'd been on more archaeological digs, knew what places to look. Refuse piles, midden heaps, kitchen scrap piles, compost boxes. Why hadn't I been born on a farm so I'd know instinctively where to search? I prodded around the grounds. I moved back and forth like a setter casting for the scent of quail. I wanted more, more. I still wasn't satisfied. Dusk. Dark, in fact. I trudged into the crate's front yard. The tow sack I carried was full to bulging. I was hot, tired, streaked with fifty years of chicken shit. The crates were on the front porch. Jim Bob lumbered down like a friendly mountain. I asked him a few questions, gave them a Xerox of one of the dodo pictures, left them addresses and phone numbers where they could reach me. Then, into the rent-a-car, off to Water Valley, acting on information Jennifer Crate gave me. I went to the postmaster's house at Water Valley. She was getting ready for bed. I asked questions. I got on the phone. I bothered people until one in the morning. Then, back into the trusty rent-a-car. On to Memphis, as the moon came up in my right. Interstate 55 was a glass ribbon before me. WLS from Chicago was on the radio. I hummed along. I sang at the top of my voice. A sack full of dodo bones, beaks, feet, and eggshell fragments kept me company in the front seat. Did you know a museum once traded an entire blue whale skeleton for one of a dodo? Driving. Driving. The Dance of the Dodos I used to have a vision sometimes. I had it long before this madness came up. I can close my eyes and see it by thinking hard. But it comes to me most often, most vividly, when I am reading and listening to classical music, especially Pachelbel's Canon in D. It is near dusk in The Hague, and the light is that of Franz Halls, of Rembrandt. The Dutch royal family and their guests eat and talk quietly in the great dining hall. Guards with halberds and pikes stand in the corners of the room. The family is arranged around the table. The king, queen, some princesses, a prince, a couple of other children, and invited noble or two. Servants come out with plates and cups, but they do not intrude. On a raised platform at one end of the room, an orchestra plays dinner music. A harpsichord, viola, cello, three violins and woodwinds. One of the royal dwarfs sits on the edge of the platform, his foot slowly rubbing the back of one of the dogs sleeping near him. As the music of Pachelbel's Canon in D swells and rolls through the hall, one of the dodos walks in clumsily, stops, tilts its head, its eyes bright as a pool of tar. It sways a little, lifts its foot tentatively, one then the other, rocks back and forth in time to the cello. The violins swirl, the dodo begins to dance, its great ungainly body now graceful. It is joined by the other two dodos, who come into the hall, all three in sort of a circle. The harpsichord begins its counterpoint. The fourth dodo, the white one from Reunion, comes from its place under the table and joins the circle with the others. It is the most graceful of all, making complete turns where the others only sway and dip on the edge of the circle that they have formed. The music rises in volume. The first violinist sees the dodos and nods to the king, but he and the others at the table have already seen. They are silent, transfixed even. The servants stand still, bowls, pots, and kettles in their hands forgotten. Around, the dodos dance with bobs and weaves of their ugly heads. The white dodo dips, takes half a step, pirouettes on one foot, circles again. 
Without a word, the King of Holland takes the hand of the Queen, and they come around the table, children before the spectacle. They join in the dance, waltzing among the dodos, while the family, the guests, the soldiers, watch and nod in time with the music. Then the vision fades, and the afterimage of a flickering fireplace, and a dodo remains. The dodo and its kindred came by ships to the ports of civilized men. The first we have record of is that of Captain von Neck, who brought back two in 1599, one for the King of Holland and one which found its way through Cologne to the menagerie of Emperor Rudolf II. This royal aviary was the Schloss Neubau, near Vienna. It was here that the first paintings of the dumb old birds were done by George and his son Jacob Hofnagel between 1602 and 1610. They painted it among more than 90 species of birds, which kept the emperor amused. Another Dutch artist named Roland Severity, as someone once said, made a career out of the dodo. He drew and painted them many times and was no doubt personally fascinated by them. Obsessed, even. Early on, his paintings are consistent. The later ones have inaccuracies. This implies he worked from life at first, then from memory, as his model went to that place soon to be reserved for all of its species. One of his drawings has two of the rapid day scrambling for some goody on the ground. His works are not without charm. Another Dutch artist, they seem to sprout up like mushrooms after a spring rain, named Pieter Witthus, also stuck dodos in all of his paintings, sometimes in odd and exciting places, wandering around during their owner's music lessons or with Adam and Eve in some Edenic ideal. The most accurate representation, we are assured, comes from half a world away, from the religious and political turmoil of the seafaring Europeans. There is an Indian miniature painting of the dodo which now rests in a museum in Russia. The dodo could have been brought by the Dutch or Portuguese in their travels to Goa and the coasts of the Indian subcontinent, or they could have been brought centuries before by the Arabs who plied the Indian Ocean in their triangular-sailed craft, and who may have discovered the mascarines before the Europeans cranked themselves up for the First Crusade. At one time, early in my bird fascination days, after I stopped killing them with BB guns, but before I began to work for a scholarship, I once sat down and figured out where all the dodos had been. Two with Van Neck in 1599, one to Holland, one to Austria. Another was in Count Solms Park in 1600. An account speaks of one in Italy, one in Germany, several in England, eight or nine in Holland. William Bontico Van Horn knew of one shipped to Europe in 1640, another in 1685, which he said was also painted by Dutch artists. Two were mentioned as being kept in Surat houses in India as pets, perhaps one of which is the one in the painting. Being charitable and considering several to mean at least three, that means twenty dodos in all. But there had to be more, when boatloads had been gathered at the time. What do we know of the didden birds? A few ship's logs, some accounts left by travelers and colonists. The English were fascinated by them. Sir Hamon L'Estrange, a contemporary of Papis, saw exhibited a dodar from the island of Mauritius. It is not able to fly, he says, being so big. One was stuffed when it died, and was put in the museum Tra Discantum in South Lambeth. It eventually found its way into the Ashmolean Museum, where it grew ratty and was burned, all but a leg and the head, in 1750. But by then, of course, there were no more dodos. Just nobody had realized it yet. Francis Willoughby got to describe it before its incineration. Earlier, old Carolus Clusius in Holland studied the one in Count Solm's Park. He collected everything known about the Raffidae, describing a dodo leg Pieter Pa kept in his natural history cabinet in Exoticarium Libri Decim in 1605, eight years after their discovery. Francois Legault, a Huguenot who lived on reunion for some years, published an account of his travels. It was published in 1690, after the Mauritius dodo was extinct and included the information that some of the males weigh 45 pounds, one egg much bigger than that of a goose, laid by the female, taking seven weeks hatching time. 
The Arb Pingray visited the masquerades in 1761. He saw the last of the Rodriguez solitaires and collected what information he could about the dead Mauritius and reunion members of the genus. After that, only memories of the colonists and some scientific debate as to where the Raffidae belonged in the great taxonomic scheme of things, some said pigeons, some said rails, were left. And eventually, even this nitpicking ended. The dodo was forgotten. When Lewis Carroll wrote Alice in Wonderland in 1865, most people thought he invented the dodo. The service station I called from in Memphis was busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. Between bings and dings of the bell, I finally realized the call had gone through. The guy who answered was named Selvage. I got nowhere with him. He mistook me for a real estate agent, then a lawyer. Now he was beginning to think I was some sort of con man. I wasn't doing too well either. I hadn't slept in two days. I must have sounded like a speed freak. My only progress was that I found that Miss Annie Mae Gudger, childhood playmate of Jo Lynn Jimson, was now, and had been, the respected Miss Annie Mae Radwin. This guy, Selvage, must have been a secretary or toady or something. We were having a conversation comparable to that between a shrieking macaw and a pile of mammoth bones. Then there was another click on the line. Young man, said the other voice, an old woman's voice, southern but very refined but with a hint of the hills in it. Yes, hello. Young man, you said you talked to a Joe Lynn somebody. Did you mean Joe Lynn Smith? Yes, hello, yes, Miss Radwin, Miss Annie Mae Radwin, who used to be Miss Gudger. She lives in Austin, Texas now. She used to live near Water Valley, Mississippi. Austin's where I'm from, and I... Young man, asked the voice again. Are you quite sure you haven't been put up to this by my hateful sister, Alma? Who? Uh, no, ma'am, I, I met a woman named Jolene. I'd like to talk to you in person, young man, said the voice. Then, offhandedly, give him directions to get here, Selvage. Click. I cleaned out my mouth as best I could in the service station restroom, tried to shave with an old clogged Gillette disposable in my knapsack, and succeeded in gapping up my jawline. I changed into a clean pair of jeans, the only other shirt I had with me, and combed my hair. I stood in front of the mirror. I still looked like the dog's lunch. The house reminded me of Presley's mansion, which was somewhere in the neighborhood, I'm sure. From a shack on the side of a Mississippi hill to this in 40 years. There are all sorts of ways of making it. I wondered what Annie Mae Gudgers had been. Luck, predation, divine intervention, hard work. Selvage led me toward the sunroom. I felt like Philip Marlowe going to meet a rich client. The house was filled with that furniture built sometime between the turn of the century and the 1950s, the ageless kind. It never looks great, it never looks ratty, and every chair is comfortable. I think I was expecting some formidable woman with sleeve blotters and green eyeshade hunched over a roll-top desk with piles of paper whose acceptance or rejection meant life or death for thousands. Who I met was a charming lady in a green pantsuit. She was in her sixties. Her hair was still a straw wheat color. It didn't look dyed. Her eyes were blue as my first grade teachers had been. She was wiry and looked as if the word fat was not in her vocabulary. Good morning, Mr. Linborough. She shook my hand. Would you like some coffee? You look as if you could use it. Yes, thank you. Please sit down. She indicated a white wicker chair at a glass table, a serving tray with coffee pot, cups, tea bags, croissants, napkins, and plates lay on the tabletop. After I swallowed half a cup of coffee at a gulp, she said, What you wanted to see me about must have been important. I'm sorry about my manners, I said. I know I don't look it, but I'm a biology assistant at the University of Texas, an ornithologist, working on my master's. I met Miss Jolyn Jimson two days ago. Oh, how is Jolyn? I haven't seen her and oh, Lord, it must be fifty years. Time gets away. Um, she seemed to be fine. I only talked to her for about half an hour, so that was... And you've come to see me about... Uh, the... About some of the poultry your family used to raise when they lived near Water Valley. 
She looked at me a moment. Then she began to smile. <laughs> oh, you mean the ugly chickens, she said. I smiled. I almost laughed. I knew what Oedipus must have gone through. It is now 4.30 in the afternoon. I am sitting at the downtown Motel 6 in Memphis. I have to make a phone call and get some sleep and catch a plane. Annie May Gudger Radwin talked for four hours, answering my questions, setting me straight on her family history, having Selvage hold all her calls. The main problem was that Annie May ran off in 1928, the year before her father got his big break. She went to Yazoo City and by degrees and stages worked her way northward to Memphis and her destiny as the widow of a rich mercantile broker. But I get ahead of myself. Grandfather Gudger used to be the overseer for Colonel Crisby on the main plantation near Macomb, Mississippi. There was a long story behind that. Bear with me. Colonel Crisby himself was the scion of a seafaring family with interests in both the cedars of Lebanon, almost all cut down from masts for his majesties and other navies, and Egyptian cotton. Also, teas, spices, and any other saleable commodity which came their way. When Colonel Crisby's grandfather reached his majority in 1802, he waved goodbye to the Atlantic Ocean at Charleston and stepped westward into the forest. When he stopped, he was in the middle of the Chickasaw Nation, where he opened a trading post and introduced slaves to the Indians. And he prospered, begat Colonel Crisby's father, who sent back to South Carolina for everything his father owned. Everything. Slaves, wagons, horses, cattle, guinea fowl, peacocks and dodos, which everybody thought of as an atrociously ugly poultry of some kind, one of the seafaring uncles having bought them off a French merchant in 1721. I surmised that these were white dodos from Reunion, unless they'd been from an even earlier stock. The dodo of Mauritius was already extinct by then. All this stuff was herded out west to the trading post in the midst of the Chickasaw Nation. The tribes around there were of the Confederation of the Dancing Rabbits. And Colonel Crisby's father prospered, and so did the guinea fowl and the dodos. Then Andrew Jackson came along and marched the Dancing Rabbits off up the Trail of Tears to the heaven of Oklahoma. And Colonel Crisby's father begat Colonel Crisby and put the trading post in the hands of others, moving his plantation westward still to Macomb. Everything prospered but Colonel Crisby's father, who died and the dodos, with occasional losses to the avenging weasel and the egg-sucking dog. Then along came Granddaddy Gudger, a Simon Legree role model, who took care of the plantation while Colonel Crisby raised ten companies of men, marched off to fight the War of Southern Independence. Colonel Crisby came back to the Macomb plantation earlier than most, he having stopped much of the same volley of mini-balls that caught his commander, General Beauregard Hanlon, on a promontory bluff during the siege of Vicksburg. He wasn't dead, but death hung around the place like a gentlemanly bill collector for a month. The colonel languished, went slap-dab crazy, and freed all of his slaves the week before he died. The war lasted another two years after that. Not having any slaves, he didn't need an overseer. Then comes the Faulkner part of the tale, straight out of As I Lay Dying, with the Gudger family finally returning to the area of Water Valley, before there was a Water Valley, moving through the demoralized and tattered displaced persons of the South, driving their dodos before them, for Colonel Crisby had given them to his former overseer for his faithful service. Also followed the story of the bloody murder of Granddaddy Gudger at the hands of the Freedmen's Militia during the rising of the First Clan, and of the trials, the tribulations of Daddy Gudger in the years between 1880 and 1910. Alma and Annie May were the second and fifth of Daddy Gudger's brood, born three years apart. They seemed to have hated each other from the very first time Alma looked into little Annie May's crib. They were kids by Daddy Gudger's second wife. His desperation had killed the first, and their father was already on his sixth career. He had been a lumberman, a stump preacher, a plowman for hire, until his mules broke out in farcy buds and died in the glanders, a freight hauler, until his horses died of overwork and the hardware store repossessed his wagon, even a politician's roadie, until the politician lost the election. 
When Alma and Annie May were born, he was failing as a sharecropper. Somehow, Gudger had made it through the Depression of 1898 as a boy, and was too poor after that to notice more about economics than the price of beech nut tobacco at the store. Alma and Annie May fought, and it helped none at all that Alma, being the oldest daughter, was both her mother and father's darling. Annie May's life was the usual unwanted poor white trash child's hell. She vowed early to run away and recognized her ambition at thirteen. All this I learned this morning. Jolyn Smith Jimson was Annie May's only friend in those days, from a family even poorer than the Gudgers. But somehow there was food, an occasional odd job, and there was always the dodos. My family hated those old birds, said the cultured Annie May Radwin. He always swore he was going to get rid of them some day, but just never seemed to get around to it. I think there was more to it than that. Oh, but they were so much trouble. We always had to keep them penned up at night and go check for their eggs. They wandered off to lay them and forgot where they were. Sometimes no new ones were born at all in a year. Oh, and they got so ugly. Once a year, I mean, terrible looking, like they were meant to die. All their feathers fell off, and they looked like they had the mange or something. Then the whole front of their beaks fell off, or worse, hung halfway on for a week or two. They looked like big old naked pigeons. After that, they'd lose weight, down to twenty or thirty pounds, before their new feathers grew back. We were always having to kill foxes that got after them in the turkey house. That's what we called their roost, the turkey house. And we found their eggs all sucked out by cats and dogs. They were so stupid. We had to drive them into their roost at night. I don't think they could have found it standing ten feet from it. She looked at me. I think, much as my father hated them, though, they meant something to him. As long as he hung on to them, he knew he was as good as Granddaddy Gudger. You may not know it, but there was a certain amount of family pride about Granddaddy Gudger, at least in my father's eyes. His rapid fall in the world had a sort of grandeur to it. He'd gone from a relatively high position in the old order and maintained some grace and stature after the emancipation. And though he lost everything, he managed to keep those ugly old chickens the colonel had given him as sort of a symbol. And as long as he had them too, my daddy thought himself as good as his father. He kept his dignity even when he didn't have anything else. I asked what happened to them. She didn't know, but told me who did and where I could find her. That's why I'm going to make a phone call. Hello, Dr. Courtney. This is Paul. Memphis, Tennessee. It's too long to go into. No, of course not. Not yet, but I've got evidence. What? Okay, well, how do trochanters, corosoids, tarsometatarsi, and beak sheath sound? From their hen house, where else? Where would you keep your dodos? I'm sorry, I haven't slept in a couple days. I, I need some help. Yes, money. Uh, lots of money. Cash, $300 maybe. Western Union, Memphis, Tennessee, whichever's closest to the airport. Airport, I, I need the department to set up reservations to Mauritius for me. No, no, not wild goose chase. Dodo chase. Tame dodo chase. I, I know there aren't any dodos on Mauritius. I know that. I could explain. I, I know it'll mean a couple of grand if... Uh, look, Dr. Courtney, do you want your picture in Scientific American or don't you? I'm sitting in the airport cafe in Port Louis, Mauritius. It is now three days later, five days since that fateful morning my car wouldn't start. God bless the Sears diehard people. I have slept sitting up in a plane seat, on and off different planes, different seats for 24 hours. Kennedy to Paris, Paris to Cairo, Cairo to Madagascar. I felt like a brand new man when I got here. Now I feel like an infinitely sadder and wiser brand new man. I have just returned from the hateful sister Alma's house in the exclusive section of Port Louis where all the French and British officials used to live. 
Courtney will get his picture in Scientific American. Me too, all right. There'll be newspaper stories and talk shows for a few weeks for me, and I'm sure Annie May Gudger Radwin on one side of the world and Alma Chandler Gudger Molieri on the other will come in for their share of the glory. I'm putting away cup after cup of coffee. The plane back to Tenerife leaves in an hour. I plan to sleep all the way back to Cairo, to Paris, to New York, pick up my bag of bones, sleep back to Austin. Before me on the table is a packet of documents, clippings, and photographs. I've come half the world for this. I gaze from the package, out the window across Port Louis to the bulk of Mount Pieter Booth, which overshadows the city and its famous race course. Perhaps I should do something symbolic, cancel my flight, climb the mountain and look down on man and all of his handiworks, take a pitcher of martinis with me, sit in the bright semi-tropical sunlight, it's early dry winter here, drink the martinis slowly toasting snuff god of extinction, here's one for the great auk, this one's for the Carolina parakeet, mud in your eye, passenger pigeon, this one's for the heath hen. Oh, and most importantly, who could forget, here's one each for the Mauritius dodo, the white dodo. Of reunion, the reunion solitaire, and Rodriguez solitaire. <laughs> Here's to Raffaday, great didden birds that you were. Maybe I'll do something just as productive, like climbing Mount Pieter Booth and pissing into the wind. <laughs> How symbolic. The story of the dodo ends where it began, on this very island. Life imitates cheap art, like the Xerox of a Xerox of a bad novel. I never expected to find dodos still alive here. This is the one place they would have noticed. But I still can't believe Alma Chandler Gudger Molieri could have lived here 25 years and not know about the dodo. Never set foot inside the Port Louis Museum, where they have skeletons and a stuffed replica the size of your little brother. After Annie May ran off, the Gudger family found itself prospering in a time the rest of the country was going to hell. It was 1929. Gudger delved into politics again and backed a man who knew a man who worked for Theodore, sure, two-handed sword of God Bilbo, who had connections just about everywhere, who introduced him to Huey Kingfish Long just after that gentleman lost the Louisiana governor's election one of the times. Gudger stomped around Mississippi, getting up steam for Long's share the wealth plan, even before it had a name. The upshot was that the long machine in Louisiana knew a rabble-rouser when it saw one, and invited Gudger to move to the sportsman's paradise with his family, all expenses paid, and start working for the kingfish at the unbelievable salary of sixty-two fifty a week. Which prospect was like turning a hog loose under a persimmon tree, and before you could say backwoods messiah, the Gudger clan was on its way to the land of pelicans, graft, and Mardi Gras. Almost. But I'll get to that. Daddy Gudger prospered all out of proportion with his abilities, but many men did that during the Depression. First a little, thence to more, he rose in bureaucratic and political circles of the state, dying rich and well-hated, but with his fingers in all the pies. Alma Chandler Gudger became a debutante, she says Robert Penn Warren put her in a book, and met and married Jean-Carl Molière, only heir to rice, indigo, and sugarcane growers. They had a happy wedded life, moving first to the West Indies, later to Mauritius, where the family sugarcane holdings were one of the largest on the island. Jean-Carl died in 1959. Alma was his only survivor. So, local family makes good. Poor, sharecropping Mississippi people turn out to have a father dying with a smile on his face, and two daughters who between them own a large portion of the planet. I open the envelope before me. Miss Alma Molieri had listened politely to my story. The university had called ahead, arranged an introduction through the director of the Port Louis Museum, who knew Miss Molieri socially. And she told me what she could remember. Then she sent a servant out to one of the storehouses, large as a duplex, and he and two others came back with boxes of clippings, scrapbooks, and family photos. Well, I haven't looked through this since we left St. Thomas, she said. Let's go through it together. Most of it was about the rise of Citizen Gudger. There's not many pictures of us before we came to Louisiana. We were so frightfully poor then. Hardly anyone we knew had a camera. Oh, look, here's one of Annie May. I thought I threw all those out after Mama died. And this is the photograph. It must have been taken about 1927.
Annie May is wearing some unrecognizable piece of clothing that approximates a dress. She leans on a hoe, smiling a snaggletoothed smile. She looks to be about ten or eleven. Her eyes are half hidden by the shadow of the brim of a gapped straw hat she wears. The earth she's standing in barefoot has been newly turned. Behind her is one corner of the house, and the barn beyond has its upper hay windows open. Out-of-focus people are at work there. And a few feet behind her, a huge male dodo is pecking at something on the ground. The front two-thirds of it shows, back to the stupid little wings and the edge of the upcurved tail feathers. One foot is in the photo, having just scratched at something, possibly an earthworm in the newly plowed clods. Judging by its darkness, it is the gray or Mauritius dodo. The photograph's not very good, one of those three-and-a-half-by-five jobs box cameras used to take. But already I can see this one, and the blow-up of the dodo taking up a double-page spread in S.A. Alma told me around then they were down to six or seven of the ugly chickens, two whites, the rest gray-brown. Besides this photo, two clippings are in the package, one from the Bruce Banner Times and the other from the Oxford newspaper. Both are columns by the same woman dealing with doings in Water Valley. Both mention the Gudger family moving from the area to seek its fortune in the swampy state to the west, and telling how they will be missed. Then there's a yellowed clipping from the front page of the Oxford newspaper, with a small story about the Gudger farewell party, dated October 19, 1929. There's a handbill in the package advertising the Gudger family farewell party, October 15, 1929, come one, come all. The people in Louisiana who sent expense money to move Daddy Gudger must have overestimated the costs by an exponential factor. I said as much. Oh, no, Alma Molieri said. There was a lot, but it wouldn't have made any difference. Daddy Gudger was like Thomas Wolfe, and he knew a shining golden opportunity when he saw one. Win, lose, or draw, he was never coming back there again. He would have thrown some kind of soiree, whether there'd been money for it or not. Besides, people were much more sociable back then. You mustn't forget. I asked her how many people came. Oh, four or five hundred, she said. There's some pictures here somewhere. We searched a while, and then we found them. Another thirty minutes to my flight. I'm not worried sitting here. I'm the only passenger, and the pilot's sitting at the table next to mine, talking to an RAF man. Life is much slower and nicer on these colonial islands. You mustn't forget. I look at the other two photos in the package. One is of some men playing horseshoes and washer toss, while kids, dogs, and women look on. It was evidently taken from the east end of the house, looking west. Everyone must have had to walk that last mile to the old Gudger place. Other groups of people stand talking. Some men in shirt sleeves and suspenders stand with their heads thrown back, a snappy story, no doubt, just told. One girl looks directly at the camera from close up, shyly, her finger in her mouth. She's about five. It looks like any snapshot of a family reunion which could have been taken anywhere, anytime. Only the clothing marks it as backwoods 1920s. Courtney will get his money's worth. I'll write the article, make phone calls, plan the talk show tour to coincide with publication. Then I'll get some rest. I'll be a normal person again, get a degree, spend my time wading through jungles after animals which will be dead in another twenty years anyways. Who cares? The whole thing will just be another media event, just like this year's big deal. It'll be nice getting normal again. I can read books, see movies, wash my clothes at the laundromat, listen to Jonathan Richmond on the stereo. I can study, become an authority on some minor matter or other. I can go to museums and see all of the wonderful dead things there. That's the memory picture, said Alma. They always took them at big things like this back in those days. Everybody who was there would line up and pose for the camera. Only we couldn't fit everybody in, so we had two made. This is the one with us in it. 
The house is dwarfed by people. All sizes, shapes, dresses, and ages. Kids and dogs in front, women next, then men at the back. The only exceptions are the bearded patriarchs, seated towards the front with the children men, whose eyes face the camera but whose heads are still ringing with something Nathan Bedford Forrest said to them one time on a smoke-filled field. This photograph is from another age. You can recognize Daddy and Miss Gudger if you've seen their photograph before. Alma pointed herself out to me. But the reason I took the photograph is in the foreground. Tables have been built out of saw horses with doors and boards nailed across them. They extend the entire width of the photograph. They're covered with food, more food than you can imagine. Oh, we started cooking three days before. So did the neighbors. Everybody brought something, said Alma. It's like an entire Safeway has been cooked and set out to cool. Hams, quarters of beef, chickens by the tubful, quail in mounds, rabbit, butter beans by the bushel, yams, Irish potatoes, an acre of corn, eggplant, peas, turnip greens, butter in five-pound molds, cornbread, biscuits, gallon cans of molasses and red-eye gravy by the pot. And five huge birds, twice as big as turkeys. Legs capped like for Thanksgiving, drumsticks the size of Schwarzenegger's biceps, whole roasted, lying on their backs on platters large as cocktail tables. The people in the crowd sure look hungry. Oh, we ate for days, said Alma. I already have the title for the Scientific American article. It's going to be called The Dodo is Still Dead. And that was our story. The dodo bird is easily one of the absolute best worst animals that our planet's ever thought up. It was like the Paul Pfeiffer of the animal kingdom, the nerdy kid next door that somehow survived the pummeling fists of Mother Nature's ever-so-cruel army of bullies, against all odds, for much longer than it should have. This bird literally had nothing going for it, aside from the fact that it was so isolated at the end of nature's nerd table during lunch that nobody even noticed that sweet ass was there for the kicking. Yet, for many of us, it's the first legendary animal we remember hearing about as children. A species of dumb, big-legged, weird-looking, pretty much good-for-nothing things that we all took for granted and now kind of miss. It's how we'll feel when the Kardashians go extinct. This story relies on just a touch of alternate history to get you just as amped as our protagonist about a handful of dodos having possibly escaped extinction by making it to the backwoods of Mississippi. And just as heartbroken to find out that they did, but it doesn't even matter. Isn't it cute, though, that we think we're any different, living on a small, spinning rock in an unthinkably larger and unknown universe, existing just close enough to a G-class yellow dwarf star to keep us from freezing to death, but just far enough away where we aren't instantly incinerated? I have a feeling that if advanced, intelligent life ever stumbled across our little island here in their intergalactic travels, we'd be appallingly easy to herd and club. So just remember, when our student of ornithology protagonist says that life is much slower and nicer on these colonial islands, you mustn't forget. Let's move on to our 100-character story winner this week by forum member Kay Billy. Here goes. Mommy, I'm really missing Daddy a lot. I know, Sweet Pea, but that's only because he runs so much. Just keep on reloading. Excellent. As you probably know, the Drabblecast holds a weekly contest in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org, where we pick a 100-character story as the winner each week and post it in our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast. Give it a shot. The appropriate section of the forum is the Twabble section. 
And of course, as I'm sure you realize, since I say it each week, the Drabblecast relies on the support of listeners such as yourself to bring you stories and good times each week. You don't have to donate to the Drabblecast, but we can only give the show out for free each week because some of you do. Follow that little voice of goodness and virtue in your head that says, Donate to the Drabblecast. You'll find support options of our website at Drabblecast.org. Alright folks, that's our show this week. Remember the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, blog about us, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, the twisted lord of bizarre and awesome art himself, Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer. Check him out at bokyer.deviantart.com. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nikki Drayden, submissions editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, do you want your picture in Scientific American, or don't you? Deep in the woods on a Saturday night Around the stump of a big old maple An old bald eagle and his koala paralegal Sit down at the head of the table There's a polar bear in a big leather chair Leaning back so far he could break it He says the manatee sends his apologies He did everything he could to make it I'm sure he did That's when the eagle said Well we gather today To offer our aid to a woodpecker Going through some stormy weather We're endangered species to some degree So we all gotta try and stick together He needs some direction He needs our protection, so I called us all together to make this connection. So let's take a sack and offer him our respect, and hear what pecking problem picked this pecker to peck. That's when the woodpecker spoke up. Well, they took my land, and they took my home, they took away my family. They took my friends, and they took my food, they took away all my trees. But the one thing that they took from me, I know I can never forgive. It's the one thing that I truly need in order for me to live. The old woodpecker took off his hat, a tear ran down his bill. He said, I could make it by without all that, but now the man's coming down on my still. He's coming down hard on my still. You can scorch my skies, you can poison my rain. Build another Burger King, have it your way. Pave more highways, add more lanes. There's too many Ivory Build woodpeckers anyway, but never take a pecker from his shine. No, never take a pecker from his old moonshine. Do what you gotta do, Lord, do what you will. But never take a pecker from his moonshine still. Moonshine. Old Carolina coffee. That rare old Mountain Dew. The good old ivory-built woodpecker's delight. There were gasps from the crowd and a burrowing owl squawked. Yo, they did that same shit to me. They destroyed my habitat, and I was fine with all that. But then they started messing with my weed. Mm-hmm. I don't sell it, I just grow, and my shit's good, yo. But the heat came down real fast. Mm. Hustler hit the big time just to come out and find. The man never lets that last. Mm. Yo, you feel me? Yeah. Prairie dog hopped up on the log and said, I can feel where you're coming from. There was a time when my family controlled all five burrows, but those times are all long gone. We had an underground racket, politicians in our pocket, but then an insider ratted us out. (laughs) If it wasn't for this co-op, we'd really be endangered. We'd be goners without a doubt. looked all around confused and said, you guys aren't really going extinct? 
And they all kind of chuckled and a walrus said, Not as long as that's what people think. You see, we're just laying low while things blow over with our business issues, shall we say. <laughs> Mr. Eagle is our legal representative for evil, our liaison with the EPA. The old woodpecker took off his hat, a tear ran down his bill. He looked at the eagle and said, whatever it takes, just keep the man from coming down on my still. It's coming down hard on my still. Well, you can scorch my skies and poison my rain. Build another Burger King, have it your way. Pave more highways, add more lanes. There's too many I've rebuilt woodpeckers anyway, but never take a pecker from the shine. No, you never take a pecker from his old moonshine. Do what you gotta do, Lord, do what you will. But never take a pecker from his moonshine still. No, you never take a pecker from his moonshine still. Devil's blood. The Irish call it poatin. The Germans call it Schwarzenegger. Here in the old U.S. America, we call it the old ivory-billed woodpecker's delight. Well, he was catching some glares from some old panda bears, and suspicions started to grow. And a sea turtle asked about what everyone was thinking. How do we know he ain't 5-0? Well, the bald eagle said, if you're gonna play dead, boy, you better understand the rules. You birds rat on us, or you blow your own cover. Your tree won't be the only thing with holes. So next time you see an endangered species, count yourself lucky as hell indeed. Cause he's one of the few, the tried and true, who doesn't traffic drugs and doesn't grow weed. The rest are alive, they're just laying low. It's their morals that are going extinct. We don't know where they are or where exactly they meet, but at least we know what they like to drink. You can scorch my skies and poison my rain. Build another Burger King, have it your way. Pave more highways, add more lanes. There's too many I've rebuilt woodpeckers anyway, but never take a pecker from his shine. No, you never take a pecker from his old moonshine. Do what you gotta do, Lord, do what you will. But never take a pecker from his moonshine still. Some people feel guilty for the things that they do. Other people don't think twice. Some people live until the day that they die. Other people play dead their whole lives. Some people give up everything above. For everything they got underground Some people get worried They'll be lost forever Other people worry They'll be found